at some point in time, he did symbolize some new possibilities. And I think that the fact that he was able to stand up when faced with a lot of pressure and see Brexit through and then win that historic election was really quite important. And that puts his role into historical perspective because what he essentially ended up doing was entirely squandering that legacy that was built up because here was a historic moment where you could have used that massive majority to build a new kind of Britain. And when you look at his record, he basically systematically completely frittered away all the goodwill and all the hopes that were invested in him by essentially behaving like a 16-year-old kid. Hello and welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my very special guest in this craziest of political weeks, Frank Faraday. Frank, welcome to the show. Great to talk to you. So Frank, the reason I wanted you on the show this week is because I've always valued your political insights in the books you've written on politics, on sociology, on, on the culture of society, obviously in the columns that you write for us at Spiked. And... This has been a week of political mayhem, and I want to ask you what you think is really going on here. So Boris Johnson has resigned after a real onslaught by the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Lots of cabinet ministers went, other ministers went, and eventually he really had no choice but to uh, uh, throw the towel in. Um Let's start by talking about what is really going on here, because I don't think you need to have have a PhD in politics to know that this is about more than pincher and the pinching of men's bottoms, which is the instigator for the current crisis. There's obviously a lot more going on. So just to set out the stall of the discussion, how serious do you think this is politically? And, and what do you think is is driving this kind of element of chaos we've seen over the past 24 hours? I think it's very serious because what it does is it kind of highlights the, the character and the nature of our politicians, of our political class, and it brings to the fore the relative immaturity and the relatively depoliticized way in which they be behave themselves. I think one of the saddest things is to see uh, a situation where almost immediately the word Byzantine comes to mind. But unlike in a genuine Byzantine situation, where you have factions and where you have different groups of uh, courtiers uh, vying for power, what you got here are a bunch of individuals who really are living in the present. They, they really have no conception of what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after tomorrow nor any conception of what their role is in relation to that. And although some of them are you know, interested in becoming leaders, most of them are just kind of going along with the temper of the time. It's almost as if they're driven in a particular direction to look out for themselves. And one of the big difference between a Byzantine situation, kind of old-fashioned court politics, and now, is that what you have is the role of the media which has been quite instrumental in dramatizing the whole dynamic of public life in Britain. And it's continually demanding scandals and more scandals, almost as if you know, they have this radar that, that's searching for uh, bad news, bad stories to kind of come to the surface. And it's created a momentum where almost all the discussion uh, for months now has been about 
non-political stuff has been about people's behavior and where parliament has been recast as this almost like woke workplace yeah. where people's behavior is judged not according to mature political considerations, but according to the rules set down by woke human resource managers. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we can come back to Boris in a moment and what Boris did represent or didn't represent. But just to stick with some points you've raised there about the turmoil and the people who are resigning and the 50 or so resigning ministers and and parliamentary secretaries who've brought this crisis about. Um, I really agree with what you said. I was thinking that it's so bizarre that they make the Tory wets look like the most well-organized group in history. You know, the, the, the infamous Tory wets as coined by Thatcher to describe a faction of the Tory party that was opposed to some of her more hardline policies. And in those days, factional politics was really was factional politics. There were groups of people who often were vying for a different view of society or a different view of how their party should work. And and there were meaningful clashes within parties over what they should be doing in political and public life. And what I think we've had over the past 24 hours or so is something very different. It's almost like every individual is his or her own faction. And it's like the the, the man and woman as faction. And I've been really surprised. Lots of people don't believe that Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak uh, accidentally resigned at the same time. They think it was organized. Now, it may well have been organized, but I can also believe that it was coincidental because there doesn't seem to be much coherence to this. And then you have someone like Suella Braverman, who is relatively sensible in some ways, you know, very quickly going on TV and saying, yes, I will stand to become leader, even before things have reached a resolution. A lot of immaturity, a lot of uh, uh, the resignation letters seem to have been aimed more at the media class and the Twitterati than at the party itself and at the, certainly not at the public. So it has become this kind of, as you say, media driven phenomenon with individuals out for themselves. So doesn't that tell us something about the state of party politics in terms of what parties themselves have become? It it does. But also before that, before you get to party politics, you look at the individuals. And one of the things that strikes you is that these people, having been groomed into public life in the conventional way, where you go through the process of working in committees, you kind of work at a party office for four or five years, you basically learn about the crafts, you know, the political crafts that are really quite important. You learn about parliamentary procedures and traditions, and you know how to behave. You learn how to behave. That's part and parcel of your education. These people have never been exposed to that. That process has been short-circuited by the way that politicians are are groomed and and, and turned into parliamentarians. So that's the first problem because you essentially have fairly immature individuals who have no idea of their responsibility either to parliament or to the nation. And then secondly, as, as you suggest, what you now have are uh, essentially not no longer any factions because factions, uh, at least in the political sense, presuppose some, some ideal that unites them, that distinguishes them from an, another faction. What you have instead are essentially groups of individuals and groups of individuals in a very kind of pragmatic, opportunistic way, you know, meet up, come and go, form alliances, you know, then move in a different direction. 
And therefore, what you then have is a very kind of fragmented, atomized, individuated political class whose, whose sense of solidarity is nil, basically. Mm. And that's why you end up with a situation where, as you suggest, you know, they're not even capable of a good old-fashioned conspiracy. Yeah, absolutely. And it does look more like a process of corrosion or, or, or the logical conclusion to a, a long-running hollowing out of politics rather than a traditional factional uprising against a leader that has become unpopular or whatever else it might be. So uh, this is quite there are many distinctive elements to this, I think, which is really worth thinking about and which can get lost in the media scrum because the media is so thrilled by what they see as a, a clear-cut political rebellion against Boris, but actually it's something a bit more complicated than that. I wanted to touch on, just on this subject, you mentioned earlier about the the politics of scandal and how over the past few years there has been this increasingly... Uh, intense focus on the morality or immorality and, and the behavior of politicians. And it is striking that Boris's card was marked by the Chris Pincher case most recently, uh, which in my view is a, mi- a, re- a fairly minor incident of bad drunken behavior that's been blown out of proportion. And of course, there's Partygate, which has serious elements to it in terms of a lack of seriousness within Downing Street, but also has its transformation into the defining moment of our era strikes me as a bit of an exaggeration. So I wanted to ask you what role you think scandal plays in politics now. This has been going on for a a few decades where very often there will be interrogations of sleaze, unethical behavior, the creation of new layers of quangocracy that are devoted to monitoring the ethical behavior of politicians, keeping an eye on on what they spend, what they earn, where they go, who they see. Is this because politics has become so hollowed out that the traditional clash between parties and within parties cannot take place at a political ideological level? And so you have this weaponization of scandal, this weaponization of so-called ethics to do the business of politics that was traditionally done in a more upfront way. Is that what's going on in these kinds of instances? Yeah, more or less. I think you now have a situation where the distinction between the public and the personal is eroded. Mm. Increasingly, people are judged by their personality or by their private behavior. And what people are judged on is not what they've achieved in public, but basically how they, you know, how they behave in private, and that kind of uh, uh, this, you know, erosion of the boundary between the public and the private has meant that the personalization of politics invites continuously uh, to, to you know, invites the media to, to look into your bedroom, to look into your bank account, you look into your everyday life, and look for some kind of focus for outrage. And we see this anyway, in general, you know, in the way that, you know, sorry, we have all the attempt to kind of find grievances on the social media. But when it comes to politicians, it, it becomes almost like a full-time uh, sort of occupation. And what it shows is two things. It basically indicates that uh, public life has become thoroughly depoliticized and where a personality becomes really quite important. But what it also shows is that uh, for a, while, a number of reasons, the role of the media and the power of the media has really increased in relation to the power of the of political institutions. In other words, they can determine the news cycle to the point at which uh, they are entirely dominated. They've always played a role in influencing 
what is and what is in news, but they were never in the past in a position where they could monopolize entirely, you know, what, you know, what is important and what, what isn't important, but they couldn't, couldn't dictate terms to the politician. Whereas now they've done that in, at COVID, you know, in the pandemic, they've done that all the way through in the last couple of years, politicians just have to react to them rather than uh, in a sense, take the initiative and provide leadership. And I think the the role that the media has played in relation to the current Boris crisis has been really informative and interesting because it's there has been almost like a herd mentality among some of the people leaving office and and flouncing out and appealing to the media as they do so. And you do think to yourself, in the absence of the old kinds of politics and the old political institutions and the old factions that made politics work or, or which had those political discussions, you do have a situation where the media has a greater hand to whip things up and to really push the narrative and push the dynamic in a particular direction. And I think they have done that over the past few, uh, couple of days. Um, in relation to some of those issues that you've raised, I wanted to ask you about the the form that the resignations have been taken, because I've been struck by the the uniform nature of what the people who are resigning have said. So they've all talked about integrity and competence. I mean, those have been the two buzzwords. You know, we need to be a party of, we need to be individuals of integrity and we need to be a competent political machine. Now, of course, everyone wants politicians to have integrity and uh, that's always a good thing. And uh, you want the mechanisms of government to be run in a competent fashion. I think that's all pretty much a given. But there is a striking absence, isn't there, of uh, any kind of political reckoning or ideological reckoning with the things that the Boris government did or didn't do. Did it do Brexit well enough? Was lockdown the right thing to do? Was the second lockdown a mistake? What are the solutions to the, to the cost of living crisis and the economic uh, disarray that this country is experiencing? Those kinds of things have been notable by their absence, and it has been the resignations and the discussion more broadly, including in the media, has taken place at that level of competence. And do you think that represents potentially a reintroduction of more technocratic questions about how things are done over and above the broader question that I think the public is interested in, which is what is being done and whose name is it being done in? I think probably, yeah. I, I mean, the way I look at it is that if you look at every single letter of resignation, you get the impression that it was written according to a script mm. provided by the media. Yeah. <laughs> the language that is used is a language that both the opposition politicians use and also those, those stories who are uh, angry at what Johnson has done. So it's, it's, a, it's a very clear narrative that's been, that's been in a sense, almost uh, acquired an industrialized proportion. You, you always get the impression that the same guy has written all the letters to all these different in, individuals. And the weasel word that, you know, that's been used now for the last few months is whenever somebody says that the big problem we have in this country is a problem of trust. Mm. Now, it sounds very profound, you know, because obviously nobody likes mistrust. When people talk about, that talk about the problem of trust, what they really are doing is, number one, personalizing the issues. The problem is whether we trust somebody or not. And that's a new development because, you know, you, you don't have to. The issue of trust is such an arbitrary, subjective uh, accomplishment that it's, you know, not something that you could nail down. But secondly, 
the moment the problem becomes one of trust, then it depoliticizes the debate to the point at which it becomes entirely about whether or not you feel confident about a particular individual. And that kind of sort of language has, has kind of, in a very insipid way, insinuated itself into the, into the entire debate and discussion. And the big tragedy is, and, and it doesn't matter which side of the debate you're on, and in fact, it's not even a debate, uh, the, the big tragedy is that nobody is addressing the substantive political questions of our time, where yeah. they stand in relation to that, making an assessment in relation to that. And that kind of, that's something that binds together the Tory MPs with the Labour and the Lib Dem MPs, because they, they're all of the same mold in the, in the language that they use. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the 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 way in which language has been used and the, and the recurring words and the way they lend themselves to exactly the headline that BBC News wants or the Guardian wants all of that has been very striking I think. Um right, so I want to ask you a little bit about Boris Johnson and what he represented and what he didn't represent. I think that's really something to to think about. So at the moment I'm flitting violently between being relieved that he's gone because he obviously was becoming a bit of a block to various things and also feeling slightly sorry for him because um, I I do think that the idea that he is single-handedly responsible for everything that's gone wrong over the past couple of years is a bit fanciful. And indeed, a lot of the people resigning from government were in government. They were also supporting and taking these decisions and failing to do particular things. So I think it's, I think the intense focus on Boris can become a bit problematic in terms of understanding exactly the things you're talking about, which is the hollow nature of politics today, the lack of vision and the lack of seriousness in in the approach to these big issues of our time. But just on Boris, what is Boris about, in your view? Because there is, of course, the there's this idea that Boris is very flighty. He's a bit of a weather vane. He agrees with the last person in the room that he's just talked to. That's one of the accusations that is frequently made against him. What's your take on Boris in terms of his political qualities and and whether the criticisms that he gets, those specific criticisms, are fair? Well, like you, I'm very ambivalent about the whole business and and often think that the reaction to him is actually worse than what he represents uh, for a variety of reasons. But if you put him under a microscope and you kind of look at him and his behavior, uh, a number of things have got to be said. The first thing that's got to be said is that uh, we don't know his inner psychology. We don't know what his temper is like. I mean, I'm not privy to what goes on in his private life. But the one thing I do know is that uh, at some point in time, he did symbolize, he did personify some new possibilities. And I think that the fact that he was able to uh, stand up when faced with a lot of pressure and see Brexit through, albeit in a, a sort of slightly compromised fashion, and then win that historic election where he achieved that kind of majority was really quite important. And that puts his role into historical perspective because what he essentially ended up doing was entirely squandering uh, that legacy that was built up because here was a historic moment where you could, you, you could have used that massive majority to, uh, in a sense, to build a new kind of Britain where you could get rid of the 
legacy of the pre-Brexit uh, sort of uh, institutions and begin to rebuild those institutions. You know, he promised, and, and I thought I was really positive, he promised to uh, fight back in the culture wars and to you know, play an important role in getting Britain back into a, a more uh, balanced, normal direction. He did nothing, mm. absolutely nothing in relation to that. And when you look at his record, he basically systematically completely frittered away all the goodwill and all the hopes that were invested in him by essentially behaving like a 16-year-old kid. I mean, that's the one thing that we do know, is that yes. you, know, you, you judge people by their actions. Uh, the only thing that he seemed to be committed about uh, were there is these kind of environmentally related issues, which were anyway very popular, but which basically constitute a dead end for British society. And you end up in a situation where having achieved something great, it's almost like, you know, sort of he decides, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to waste it and, and risk demoralizing all the people, you know, that have, you know, stood up and fought uh, for, for, for the, a new way of life. So in that sense, I do have very strong views against his behavior and, and what he stood for. And it's a tragedy, you know, sort of uh, the tragedies, of course, is that uh, when you look around everybody else around, they're not exactly uh, God's gift to public life either. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I, there's a tinge of sadness as I watch these events unfold, and I absolutely cannot take part in the glee that has greeted Boris's demise. Is I agree with your assessment of him. I don't think he uh, was the man for the job that we gave to him in the 2019 election. By we, I mean 14 million people who voted for him. But it's because I'm thinking about those 14 million people who really took a bit of a risk, especially people who had never voted for the Tories in their lives. You know, they had been Labour voters forever, but they took a risk at the ballot box because they were incredibly worried about what was happening with Brexit and they were incredibly worried with the culture of society and, and the culture wars in the direction that they were going in. And there was as you say, a very clear and large mandate for Boris Johnson to do something about those areas of life, and he, he did squander it. But in relation to one aspect of that in particular, I'll come on to Brexit in a moment. Uh, I want to ask you about what you think that represents. But firstly, just on the culture wars, and I agree with you that Boris just did not fight the culture wars. It's like every week there's a column in The Guardian saying all that Boris is interested is in fighting the culture wars. And I read them and think, I wish that was true. Yeah. It's obviously not true. And I wanted to ask you why you think that is. And I mean, one of the striking features of our age, and this really goes back to the 80s and the 90s in particular with political correctness, a kind of early manifestation of the culture war and wokeness, is that there, there has often been a disconnect between the democratic spirit, which tends to be quite sceptical of these ideologies, particularly of wokeness in the current moment and the idea that a woman can have a penis and that racists from the 1700s need to have their statues taken down. There's a lot of healthy democratic skepticism about those intolerant ideas, but they seem to be becoming increasingly institutionalized in public life and through the media and in education. And what I was hoping was that if Boris Johnson and others who claim to be skeptical of wokeness, if they were given that democratic power to shake this up, that they might be able to cut through the institutionalized blob of correct thought. And they obviously haven't been able to do that. So is it that the blob 
is just too powerful or is it that they just don't have the moral and political resources for that fight? Why were they so incompetent in, in the culture wars in particular? Boris Johnson, like everybody else, unfortunately, seems to imagine that the uh, what they call wokeness or the, uh, the other side of the culture war don't really represent very much. They have, you know, a very good laugh. Oh yeah, women with penises, ha 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they think this is a big joke and you have all these, you know, caricatures being drawn of, of different woke institutions. And they think it's a fairly superficial phenomenon, mm. you know, that you can get rid of easily. What they don't really understand is that that kind of attitude has been profoundly institutionalized over the decades. For the last three and a half, four decades, that kind of uh, orientation towards the world has been getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah. Its biggest victory has been the fact that they're able to monopolize the education of children. So every young generation that comes along are ones that have been exposed to their ideas. So if you're going to fight the culture war, it is a very serious and long-term struggle. It requires a lot of effort. It requires you to be fairly brave and also decisive. You have to get rid of half the people in the home office. You have to basically shake up all the institutions of the state. You have to be prepared to be extremely unpopular and face you know, 24-hour day criticisms from the BBC and other media outlets. And that, you know, culture is, is a war. Yeah. You know, it isn't just a, you know, a, a, an occasional, you know, sort of mild discussion and mild debate. And, and they were really not up for that. I mean, they just haven't had a clue. And therefore, you have a situation, as you suggest, is that uh, although The Guardian and all these papers claim that it's the right wing that yeah. is finding the culture war, reality is the very opposite. And they've been very successfully just kind of, uh, you know, through a war of maneuver, just kind of making you know, very significant gains. And I think the Tory party, uh, despite all you know, sort of uh, its rhetoric, has been singularly unprepared and, and in fact unwilling to join that battle. Yeah, and I, I was constantly struck by almost the sense of impotence among, even among ministers who did raise certain questions, usually quite narrow questions about culture war issues. So we've had Suella Braverman saying, look, schools don't have to use preferred pronouns for pupils if they don't want to, which very soft intervention. And in the meantime, schools are just plowing ahead with the, yes. cult, the culture of transgenderism. You had Sajid Javid when he was, uh, before he resigned as health secretary saying, you know, we need to think about what these gender clinics are doing with young people who, who think they're the wrong sex. And you just think, isn't there something more decisive you could be doing or saying or more decisive action you could be taking, taking to prevent the provision of drugs to children that will have a destructive impact? So there was a, often a very uh, impotent sense, even when they did approach these issues. And one of the ways in which this government and its supporters in the media, one of the ways in which they explained that impotence or tried to justify it was to talk about the civil service. And I did want to ask you specifically about the civil service and what that has become as well. And now, you know, if you look at the Dom Dominic Cummings view of the world is that Whitehall needed a profound shakeup and it was all a bunch of people who weren't doing what the democratically elected or a democratically appointed ministers were telling them to do. And there have been some clear examples of that. There have been examples, especially around the Home Office, 
where Priti Patel, whatever one thinks of her virtues as a Home Secretary, has been blocked and uh, accused of bullying just because she said the F word in front of people and all those kinds of things. How much of a problem do you think the civil service has become and, and the Whitehall establishment? I don't think it's completely the explanation for the government's failures. And in fact, it's sometimes used to let the government off the hook for not being more decisive. But how much do you think the the culture of Whitehall is a problem? And, and, and isn't that a problem for democracy? Because it means that we can vote in a particular way, but sometimes things won't change a great deal. Well, we'll never know how much of a problem they are because they've never been challenged. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the funny thing is that people talk about the blob, but at the same time, there's been no concerted attempt yeah. to put the boot in. Uh, and that's really what, what you've got to do. Uh, and I think as you're right to suggest that the civil service is only part of the problem mm. because there are a number of other cultural institutions that continually fuel these kinds of attitudes. Because you have to remember that these top civil servants in the home office and the foreign office are part of an education system that has groomed them to think in a particular kind of a way. And I know that, you know, uh, in recent years, when I meet civil servants and I talk to them, they have such contempt mm -hmm. for the Conservative Party, such contempt for anybody that challenges their smug war kind of principles. So that, that will be a, you know, that will be a major struggle. But, you know, you, you are elected as the leader. You are the government yeah. meant to be governing, not accommodating, you know, to a bunch of uh, civil servants just because, you know, they're there. You have to remember, it's not the case that the, they're so professional and they have such incredible expertise that they cannot be replaced because they're not exactly the most sophisticated Mandarin class in the world. But they have to be challenged and, and nobody has challenged them. Yeah. And that's, that, you know, that's why we don't know how strong they really are. The one thing that we do know is that the cultural institutions, particularly in the media, are fiercely going to fight back on anything and they're going to put the worst possible light on anything that you do. And they are going to try to make it impossible for you to operate if you ever did engage in a serious uh, fight back. How Woke Won, the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Okay, so a couple more questions. I want to ask you about Boris and Brexit. So um, you mentioned earlier on about how Boris at least made a stab at representing a different kind of demand that was coming from the electorate in terms of the vote for Brexit, the risk they took with Boris Johnson himself, an obvious desire, a very clear desire amongst large sections of the public for politics to be done in a more, a different, more direct a fairer, more democratic form. So on the Brexit issue, I, I always find this quite a difficult one to navigate because um, obviously I'm a Brexiteer. We, we at Spiked are very proud supporters of Brexit and we think it was a great democratic moment. Uh, but I, what I find is that very often the, the media classes and the cultural elite will see Boris not simply as trying to give voice to Brexit, but as it, the embodiment of Brexit. So they, firstly, they will say that he is largely responsible for it, him and Nigel Farage and the other 
slippery demagogues who apparently led us all down the garden path on on in the referendum in 2016. So they see them as being really in command of it and having ownership over over it. But they also see it as just a weird experiment that Boris and his uh, rich chums decided to go along with, which is obviously a real warping of the truth, which if anything, Boris and others around his circle have often struggled to give true representation to the more radical populist nature of something like the vote to leave. So they get that really wrong. But what do you think could happen with Brexit itself, and more importantly, the Brexit spirit, now that Boris is, has been pushed aside, even though we don't think he is Brexit by any stretch of the imagination, could it embolden the enemies of Brexit and lead them to think that there could now be a, a restoration of the old regime, a restoration of technocracy? Is that something that we need to really be cautious about? Yeah, I mean, Heseltine came on the record, I think yesterday, and said that now that Boris is going, mm. You know, there's no need to be outside of Europe anymore. Yeah. There's this kind of uh, hope on their part that we can go back to the status quo ante. I don't think that's possible, but that's not the issue because if they can revitalize their kind of uh, technocratic political outlook and basically discredit Brexit by blaming everything that's gone badly on the decision of the, of the people, then what they can actually do is turn the clock back mm. and demoralize large sections of our society so they no longer believe in themselves anymore. And that could be a, a very major setback, a very major defeat. So we have to somehow find ways and means of making a very clear distinction about the stuff that's been going around in, in Downing Street with the uh, importance of retaining the momentum that kicked in around Brexit and giving that some degree of vitality in the, in the period ahead. I mean, the big tragedy was that, you know, you could have at that point, the day after Brexit, you could have launched a, a campaign to almost like create a new deal for Britain, mm -hmm. where you systematically try to reform society, reform the institutions, re reindustrialize British society. You could have done, done all that stuff instead of uh, just simply going along with what had already existed and not doing anything other than give a few fiery speeches. I agree with that. And to, and to what extent do you think we are witnessing behind all the Westminster and media obsessions about Chris Pincher or Partygate or whatever scandal they're going to talk about next, to what extent do you think we're witnessing a possible realignment, a re-realignment, I suppose, of political life? So there has been a trend in Western politics especially Anglo-American politics in recent years, where you have a crash through politician who crashes through all the usual crap and appeals to the public quite directly and gets into power and does things that politicians are apparently not supposed to do. Donald Trump in the US, uh, Boris and Brexit over here, which are, are obviously a bit different. Scott Morrison in Australia was a bit of an outlier who comes in and didn't do a particularly good job. And now... All of those things seem to be uh, being resolved in the wrong direction. So Trump is out. Lots of working class voters in America feel a bit disenfranchised. You've got Biden in power, who is just a, an incredibly stultifying political figure. 
the old decaying establishment made flesh. In Australia, Anthony Albanese, pretty boring Labour politician, has taken the reins from Scott Morrison. Um, and here we do have a situation where lots of the people being lined up to replace Boris Johnson are nothing to write home about. And some of them are pretty stiff, technocratic, even pro-Remain politicians. So if populism was a corrective to the decay and the anti-democracy of the old political establishment, is it possible that what we're living through now represents a corrective to populism? And even and even though you say that's not necessarily going to work, do you think that beneath the surface, that's the kind of process that we're witnessing? You're absolutely right to raise this point, because it's interesting that last 36 hours, there's been all these politicians in... Um, in Brussels, who are saying this is the end of populism. Yeah. And they see this as like, you know, the end of the drama that they had to suffer. And now they can go back to the good old days where technocracy is unquestioned. I think there's a danger, of course, that uh, uh, in the moment of demoralization, you will have the these kind of uh, extremely conformist politicians coming to the fore. But at the same time, what, what led to Brexit and what led to the kind of populist moment, those kind of sentiments are still bubbling under the surface and they have a, a degree of strength. I think if you look around the world today, you see what's happening in Holland with the farmers' rebellion. You look around Europe in general and, and last French elections. You know, you know, the last French elections where Macron barely won is not exactly uh, a demonstration that... Uh, you know, the old establishment is, is back in power and it's, it's all right. So there is, there's a kind of double process going on under the surface. I think that that kind of populist aspiration for something uh, real that will generally improve their life is there. Whilst at the same time, I think technocracy feels a little bit better, feels a little bit more comfortable this morning than yesterday. Yeah. Even though, you know, sort of, uh, it wasn't the case that Johnson was necessarily bringing about the, a populist revolution. So to that extent, it's, it's for that reason that you and I and people who understand what's going on in, in, the, in the political life cannot really celebrate mm -hmm. the, the demise of Johnson because his demise you know, isn't going to bring forth uh, anything that's better or more positive than what's gone on beforehand. Okay, and then my final question, which follows on nicely from that closing comment you made there, this is an open-ended question, I think, because this is going to have to be an ongoing discussion. But it seems increasingly clear that there is no wing or of the political establishment and no institution in political society that is capable of genuinely representing the populist desires of, of the British public. And in many instances, those institutions of society and the parties in the mainstream are hostile to the populist spirit that people projected in 2016 and 2019. So what does that mean for people like you and me and, and many of the readers of Spiked who are very interested in having a livelier, more democratic realm in which people ha are really taken seriously and have in power to determine what debates are had and what policies are pursued? For people like us, what does that mean? Does that mean that we really do need something else, something different? some breaking away from the old establishment, which clearly just cannot marry itself up to 
the desires and wishes of the public. How how radical a break do you think we need if we are going to make good on people's populist aspirations? I think fairly radical because it doesn't really matter which bit of the political spectrum you're on. Uh, I think we can all agree that the existing political establishment, the existing political class, is simply ineffective to the point at which they they cannot get anything done. Mm. You know, they, they haven't got the capacity to genuinely confront the many, many problems that we face. So essentially, we're, in a sense, uh, confronted with a situation where our society is not really governed, not really ruled, but almost kind of uh, allowed to float, you know, sort of in response to, you know, sort of the, the latest pressure that's placed upon it. So under those circumstances, we do need something that is far more radical in the sense of genuinely grappling with the problems and, and forcing public life to deal with these problems, not, not tolerating a situation where we're worried and, uh, and kind of focused on people's personal behavior, not allowing a situation where we allow ourselves to be distracted by petty scandals. I don't care how parliamentarians behave, and I don't particularly care you know, whether a parliament is a good workplace or not. What I do care about is what parliamentarians actually achieve, you know, you know, what they do. So we have to, got to almost get people to understand that we have to re-politicize public life. And we are faced with a very kind of powerful technocratic pressure to depoliticize everything. And we just got to find a way, find a way of countering that. And, and populism, which is so hated by the political class, has got the virtue of actually giving voice to sentiments that are organic to people's experiences that aren't dreamt up by a few administrators and technocrats. And to that extent, I think that gives us a certain amount of leverage and we've got to really make that work for us and create a new challenge that's comparable to the challenge that Brexit represented to the existing way of political life. Frank, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.